Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery and we will be joined by authors, artists and in some cases as subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. You can see Vanessa Bell's portrait on display in room 31 at the National Portrait Gallery. Painted by Duncan Grant somewhere around 1918, it shows her in a floral red dress, holding a pale pink rose. The creative talent of Bell, a painter and one of the leading figures of the Bloomsbury Group, was often overshadowed by that of her sister, the writer Virginia Woolf. More recently, her work has been reappraised and reconsidered, celebrated for its experimental force and sensuality. As the critic Lauren Elkin wrote in The Guardian, Bell's art encompassed an entire way of life, a kingdom of paint. At the time of the portrait, Bell lived with Duncan Grant, her husband Clive Bell, and Grant's lover, David Garnet, at a farmhouse in Sussex, painting, writing, gardening, and living as she painted, relishing both the freedoms of modernity and the liberating effects of post-impressionism. I headed to Charleston, now a museum, to meet the curator, Dr. Darren Clark, head gardener, Fiona Dennis, and Bell's granddaughter, the writer, Virginia Nicholson. My grandmother, Vanessa Bell, lived here at Charleston, so I spent my childhood holidays here. Can you tell us where we're sitting right now? Right now, we're sitting in this amazing and very exciting new building, which is the entrance to our brand new state-of-the-art art gallery, which opened exactly a year ago. How does it feel for you to return? I know you come here a lot and are very involved with Charleston. How does it feel every time you return? I always love coming to Charleston. I never get bored of it, partly because every time I come, I'm always showing somebody different round or I'm listening to reactions of people. And although I know it very deeply, I've known this house all my life, people have different responses to it. And I find it very stimulating and exciting listening to how our visitors react to it and how they respond to both the interiors and to the garden and now also to our exhibitions and our amazing programme because there's so much going on here at Charleston. Talks, festivals, music, there's a lot going on here. But it seems as if it was the type of place where a lot of things were always going on, particularly in in your grandmother's time, It, it was such a creative hub. Well, that's a very good reaction, Laura, because it always was. And that's why I feel that although it's got bigger, there's always a fundamental core that we stick to what Charleston is really about. When I was a child, I loved coming here for the whole summer because there was always so much to do. And it was a place where creativity was a way of life. We were let loose, we were liberated, we felt totally uninhibited because you could get lost up the downs or you could get stuck in the mud in the pond, but at the same time you could play with clay and paper and paint, every possible kind of creative medium. My father had his pottery here and I have wonderful memories of him 
bashing clay and creating sculptures and plates and watching wonderful things grow from his wheel. I was painted sitting in the studio by both Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant and they bribed me sixpence an hour with the result I'm very happy about to have uh, a couple of those portraits now sitting rather grumpily reading my book in the in the studio. Another thing my father used to get us to do, which was fantastic, was we would make paper cities and he'd cut out beautiful designs for churches and bridges and houses and palaces and we would spend maybe a week creating a painted city out of paper. You know, it was like little tabs glued together and it was all 3D, the river running through it. And then we would put it on a big board, take it out onto the terrace in front of the house and set fire to it. And it was absolutely brilliant. Of course, we loved doing things like that. Anything to do that was a bit dangerous and a bit wacky and offbeat. And I think the whole house has that spirit. There's that sense of being rather uninhibited. We're all so cautious in this country. We don't like colour. We're too, we're afraid. We want to paint all our rooms magnolia because we're afraid to paint them black or grey or red or orange or green. If you go to Charleston, so many people come away from Charleston saying, oh, I think I'll go home and paint my chairs. And they do, and it brings joy to their lives. Hello, I'm Fiona Dennis. I'm the head gardener at Charleston House and Garden here in East Sussex. Can you tell us exactly where we're standing at this moment? At this moment, you're standing in the walled garden and you're listening to the sound of poplar trees and willows. It's autumn, so we've now got that sort of particular rustle that you get with the trees. Could you tell us what the garden looks like at this time of year? The walled garden is flint walls all the way around with small busts of classical figures on the top of the walls. But it is an artist's garden, so you would expect to find all sorts of unusual things here. It's very rich colours at this moment in the year. Lots of reds and oranges and the purples of the asters. The big shots of red that you can see are zinnias, and zinnias are a really important plant in this garden. Why are they important? They're important because they painted them a lot. And every flower in this garden has been chosen because it's reflected in their paintings. And more importantly, the actual cultivar of that particular flower. So we don't want any zinnias, we want the zinnias that really do match the colour match. And that's because it's a painter's garden. So we want to show those paintings in living form as they were seen by the artists themselves. So how important was this garden to Vanessa Bell? I think it was really important. When you see the letters that Virginia and Vanessa wrote to each other as they were deciding whether to move here, the letters enthuse about the landscape and then enthuse about the garden. One thing Vanessa was so pleased about was that the apples on the apple trees came with the lease. So from living in London primarily, they were really excited to come to a garden where they could grow plants and food. In fact, on their, when they arrived, Vanessa and Duncan and Bunny were the three adults that arrived, Aunt David Garnet. And David Garnet brought with him bees, a colony of bees, and Vanessa brought with her a bag of artichoke roots. So we know that they had every intention of producing food. And there are a lot of artichokes here today, aren't there? They're spiking up quite tall. And they're, they're really distinctive, aren't they? They're, they're crazy. They're about, what would you say, two and a half yeah. metres high? They're in the flower beds, which is a bit unconventional. And there always were 
artichokes here in this garden and in many of their paintings they paint them along with red hot pokers or with um, any other strikingly architectural plant. What was it about its position on the downs that they particularly admired? Oh, seclusion. They wanted the privacy. This garden really was a sanctuary for them. It was private. It was where they could come and just be themselves, explore their ideas, explore different ways of living, and not feel that they had to answer to anyone outside. Just a close group of friends. They had lots of visitors, but they were quite protective of their time. They did lots of plays and theatricals out here. The children played in the pond all the time. They were always in and out of the water or up and down in boats and rowing boats. And all the paintings that I've seen of the flowers are all cut flowers that they've picked out of the garden, brought into the studio, put into a vase. They didn't do florist arrangements. They weren't pretty little arrangements. They were really chosen for colour, structure and um, the impact of those flowers. So that's why we've got this wonderful legacy of pictures. When you say they wanted to explore different ways of living, obviously we're quite familiar with their <laughs> reputation as a group. But how did that show in the planting of the garden? What would other gardens, more conventional gardens, have looked like at the time? It's an interesting question because people say, oh, I'm sticking to the plants for that particular period. And people say, yes, but they would have been adventurous with their, their plants. And they would have. They absolutely would have. And they would grow things that perhaps weren't so used. They grew lots of silver-leaved plants because you could see that in the house a lot of the corridors were all grey, Charleston grey, and the edges of the flower beds here tend to be grey in the paintings. So the, the plants that they used to get that colour were, were pinks, lovely old-fashioned pinks, and stachys and flomis and senecio, all those Mediterranean-y hot plants that needed grey foliage to combat the hot sun. And as soon as you put a strong colour against grey, it just leaps out at you. How would the garden have looked when they first arrived? Funnily enough, when they first arrived, they arrived in September, and there was fruit on the trees, which was great, in the orchard, um, but the actual wall garden was just a sea of mud and potatoes. So in a way, quite daunting. And they did have a gardener for most of the time they were here, so they had someone doing a lot of the digging and the vegetable growing. But it's very clear that they did choose their own flowers. So it's been interesting, it's not necessarily fashionable. It's what they did. And so I want it to be authentic to what they did. Otherwise we'll get all sorts of illusions about what their tastes were. Putting something like rows and rows of pinks down the edge of a path, a lot of people will say, oh, there's a lot of pinks here, and they'll sort of frown. And then I show them a painting of the garden full of pinks, and that's the way it was. So maybe that will come back in fashion. Maybe we can set a new trend. Well, we're walking across the top terrace of the walled garden and at the very end in the corner you'll find a strange rustic sort of pergola but this is actually the exit from the studio and on warm days they would have these doors open and they'd put up the easel here so we've got some wonderful paintings from this very angle looking down the borders which can inform us what's going on and again the uh, the doors are pale grey kind of a pink a pink leaf grey i guess this aren't is they? charleston grey it's a <laughs> it's a registered colour um, and it doesn't set things off nicely. What about this inlay here? This is a, a mosaic. It's on the floor. As you come out of the studio, there's this little square mosaic of broken... It's made from broken china and from broken mirror. And it's a little fish. And what I rather like is that the, the sea or the water is, is covered with... It, it's a mirror, broken mirror, so that's rather nice. They didn't have any qualms about breaking the mirror. <laughs> 
nervous superstition. There's lots of sculptures in the garden. Some were done by themselves. By One was by Duncan. There's um, two by uh, John Skeeping. And there are a lot of sculptures by Quentin Bell, who was their son, of course. It was Vanessa's son. Lots of asters at this time of year. And monk's hood. A lovely blue monk's hood is on its second blooming. And a great big bank of dahlias down there at the end. And this is honesty. Lots of honesty. Um, white and pink. And it leaves these lovely see-through sort of moony seed heads. And you see those in some of the paintings with, along with everlasting flower, which is also a sort of papery flower. And they were used together often in paintings because, of course, they could paint them in the winter. Take the, the covers off and it reveals the little moons behind the seeds. These are your, these are the paper flowers. These oh, sort wow. Of, they look as if they're going to be very delicate, sort of spring-like flowers, but... Yes. They wow. look quite prickly, you know, in what they are. And look at this day, this is insane. Oh, this is a bonkers day. This is Hamari girl. She's That's outrageous. That's like a, almost a, the size of a baby's head. <laughs> she, she's Bright famous. fuchsia pink. <laughs> Bright fuchsia pink. Outrageous. She says, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> it was Virginia when I asked her what she remembered of the garden as a child. I th she said... Uh, red hot pokers mm. and she said they were six foot tall and of course I said oh that's because you were a child they can't possibly have been that tall um they don't you don't get that sort of red hot poker anyway so then there's a photograph and there's Duncan standing there with Angelica and there's a huge red hot poker way over his head and he was five eight so then I had quite a lot of research to try and get hold of a very old-fashioned red hot poker which we've now done uh where do you even begin to find such a thing in that particular incident, I, I was mentioned it to a gardener friend who was working in a very old garden, and he said, it's funny you should mention that because we're actually clearing out a bed that's got really old-fashioned red hot pokers in it because they're too big. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> Bottle of wine for that lot. <laughs> My grandmother died when I was six. She loved her grandchildren very much. She was very devoted. And what I do remember being painted by her is that to get me to sit still, it wasn't just a question of bribing me with sixpence an hour. It was also, she would say, look at the paintings on the walls and tell me stories about them. So that would engage my attention. Do you think that this house and the people in it have shaped your own creativity and shaped the way you see the world? Certainly, the, the house has had a, a huge impact on me. Probably I would find that my brother and sister, who are both visual artists, I'm a writer, they're visual artists, they would agree with me that we've all had to navigate round the influence of this place in our own creative lives. Um, it's not the easiest thing being a writer when your great aunt is Virginia Woolf. And I had to find my own way. I worked in television for quite a long time as a researcher. And actually my solution in the end has been stay clear of fiction. So I write non-fiction. You can't replicate the past. You don't want to be your grandparents. You want to be yourself. But we've all embraced Charleston. We love the place. I, I'm perhaps the one who has spent most time here and has become most involved in it. I don't know why that is, perhaps because um, I've just had a little bit more time. 
Does the colour and joy come into your writing, though? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I think perhaps what I take from the look and the feel of the, the Bloomsbury artists is a sense of positivity, definitely a sense of colour, and I think something about Charleston that I respond to very strongly is that it's a place that is positive, embracing, joyful, and I love that. I like art that uh, that says yes to life, but also that challenges. These artists were extraordinarily experimental, extraordinarily new. It's impossible to find an artist in this country who did abstract work before they did. They were they were abstract artists before the First World War. It's amazing what they did. How old were you when you realised how pioneering your, your grandmother in particular was? Oh, I was oblivious to what was going on here. I just, you know, when you're a child, you take everything for granted. I knew we were a little bit different, but I don't think I had any great appreciation of them in an art historical context until I was really into my 20s and 30s. I started to realise not just how um, innovative and challenging their art was, but also the Bloomsbury Group on a wider front had so many different aspects to it. It wasn't just about painting and it wasn't just about, about writing. It was about bringing visual art off the walls and out of the frames of pictures and into our everyday lives. So it was about craft, it was about um, ceramics, fabrics and textiles and lighting. The Bloomsbury Group were involved in so many things. They were involved in dance, in theatre, in economics like Maynard Keynes, psychoanalysis, you know, you name it, there's a Bloomsbury connection. Is there um, a single piece of your grandmother's work that you particularly love? I think the portrait that we have on display at the moment here at Charleston, which is a portrait of Virginia Woolf, of her sister, is an amazing and very special work of art in the 1920s. And it shows a figure sitting in an armchair. The face is almost blank, but despite being blank, it's full of character, and how she achieves that, I think, is a little short of genius. The other thing that I find special about it is the black lines. She breaks her picture up into planes of colour in a way that makes you look at it almost as an abstract. She's playing with colour, the green, the orange, the red, the blue. Almost it's like a kind of mosaic, and I find it an absolutely beautiful and endlessly rewarding painting to look at. I'm Dr Darren Clark. I am the rousing head of collections, research and exhibitions for the Charleston Trust. So we're in the house now and uh, we're standing in probably one of the most important rooms in the house. Yeah, this, we call this room Clive Bow's study. And this room was one of the last to be decorated, but also one of the first in the house to be decorated way back in 1916. They came down in 1916. A conscription had been introduced in March of that year. Duncan Grant and his lover David Gunn were both conscience objectors, so they needed to find work on a farm or go to prison. So Vanessa Bell found them a farmer that would employ them, um, found them a house where they could live, and they moved here in October 1916. 
And then they were here full time for the rest of the war. And then they decided to keep Charleston on as their kind of summer place. So they come down in August, September, sometimes in the winter, but it's really, really cold in the winter. Um, and that went on until the beginning of the Second World War when they decided to make Charleston their primary home. But they always had places in London where they would go to. Everywhere you look, your eye falls on a, on a slightly different pattern or a different painting. Are there any sort of standout points in here for you? I think Clive Bell's study is almost like Charleston in one room. So there's all these disparate things that shouldn't go together. In the middle of the room, there's a market, Dutch marquetry table that was a wedding present to Clive and Vanessa Bell. And next to it is a small coffee table with tiles by Duncan Grant from the 1930s. There's examples of their textiles for Duncan Grant's West Wind and Vanessa Bell's abstract, again from the early 30s. Um, there's Chinese... Um, pieces, there's Indian fabric at the windows, there's all sorts of things there's very vernacular things, so there's a lot of um, Staffordshire flatbacks um, there's also um, rag rugs in the house there's um, Sussex settles and then there's these wonderful, exciting things from the Omega workshops, these sort of very modern things that just sit very nicely alongside it. And a lot of books. Lots of books, so this was the being Clive Bell's writing room in his later years, so he would be in here writing articles for the listener and his books and his memoirs he wrote here. So these floor tiles, would these be These original? were original from, so the house, the oldest part of the house is 16th, 17th century. Can I just written. say that as, as, as we walk through the house, there's art everywhere, isn't there? <clears throat> from sculptures to frame paintings. And, and we're now in the garden room. This is the garden room. This room was decorated at the end of the Second World War. So this has a lovely pale grey paisley design and little white flowers so it's got a peaceful more resolved feel to it and this would have been where they hung all their best paintings so this would have been where the Matisse was this would have been where the Picasso was um, and this is where they hung their early works so we've got a um, Iceland poppies which was a painting by Vanessa Bell from about 1908 but yes there are some extraordinary history of 20th century painting in, in the house and these doors these double doors open out onto one of the main walkways of the garden, don't they, where you can see the, the banks of pinks? Yes, so this um, appropriately called the garden room in that you get this beautiful view through one window of the pond and then through the other window of the walled garden and the pathway, um, the garden that was laid out by Roger Fry sort of at the end of the First World War. And then all the exciting restoration of the garden that our, our head gardener, Fee, has been working on. And it's still, it's October now and there's still lovely colours rich and lots of rich growth in the garden still. So we've got lots of roses in this garden. We've yes. got, I think it's 63 different roses. I've been here two and a half years, so none of them are labelled. <laughs> so I've been trying to nail them all down and I've got tiny discreet labels on them now. So. How does this garden smell in summer? Well, there was an extraordinary thing that happened. When I put in this pinks border, because that took a couple of years to get the right pinks to prepare the border, to propagate them up. When they first flowered, this great big, what is it, 40 foot long border, double sided with pinks. When they first flowered, I walked in one morning and the garden was just full, absolutely full of the smell of these pinks. It was absolutely gorgeous. And it was then that I read in a letter that Vanessa Bell had written to somebody and she said, oh, I've, I've stepped out of the garden room into the garden and the smell of pinks filled the garden and I thought wow we've not just created the historic plant we've created the historic smell and that was really magic. So your, your work is not just gardening I guess it's a bit of detective work as well isn't it? I think it is and it's kind of garden archaeology and I think if you've got a historic garden you know, it's got to be right just like the house has to be right 
You, you can't cut corners on that sort of thing. People come here expecting to find the garden that they loved. And they really did love their garden. So it's important that it's exactly right, as much as you can. I mean, obviously these things are challenging, but it's very important. It was a private domestic garden. It was their own idea of paradise. So let's make sure we, we do the honour of that. We're just coming into the piazza here, um, which is a nice square area with these mosaics on the ground. And the mosaics, once again, broken china and a lot of broken flower pots as well as terracotta. But it's their china. You can see it's actually got their hatching and their circles, very characteristic of their, their work. Um, they're in a f slightly precarious state, but they're there. That's what they, were, that's what they did. And it was probably casually pulled together at some point in a moment of enthusiasm. And the piazza was built in the 1940s, and there's a tiny pond here which was added later, in 45 or 6, I think it was. And that little mouth, that little face there with the mouth, with the water coming out of it. Before we go around to the pond, could I just ask you about this lady standing behind us? She's a life-sized <laughs> statue. Oh, this is my hero. This is Pomona. She's a lovely tall statue. What is she? A metre and a half? Nearly, she must be over two metres high. And this statue was actually made by Quentin. And it shows a woman with fruit and a bucket on her head. And this was taken from a sketch that Duncan did of lemon gatherers when he was on holiday in Italy. So it's two generations of artists working on this. Of course, I like her because she's the bringer of seasons. So she's, she's my top goddess. And I bet she, she's <laughs> hanging in the shadows here. Unexpectedly. She, yes, she is. You come across a lot of the statues here unexpectedly. <laughs> and these beautiful, beautiful black poplars. And black poplars are quite rare. And this area used to be a dump area, but I, did, I didn't like having these beautiful trees stuck in a dump area. So I've cleared the dump. And the more I cleared, the more I found there's actually three trees here. One, two, the big ones you can't possibly miss. And then there's the third one that was hidden in the ivy, but has been topped by a storm. So then I thought, that's funny, three trees, three adults came here. Then I found out that the trees are about 100 years old, which fits in exactly with when they moved in, really, 1916. And they're 10 feet apart, so I can't help thinking there's a story in these three trees that we don't know. Would they have been as unusual at the time they moved down here? I don't know, actually. It would be interesting to know. The funny thing is that at Monk's house, Vita Sackville West gave three poplar trees to Leonard and Virginia to mark their three lives together. And they're planted, they were planted at Monk's house as well. So I'm sure there's more to be found out there. And so this door leads through into the studio? Yeah, so this is the main studio. This was built in the mid-1920s, so after the end of the First World War, again, Duncan Grant decorated the walls and the, and the fireplace. Um, and there's some lovely big pieces of furniture. So there's uh, the big Dutch cabinet. So Vanessa Bell's father's first wife was the daughter of William Makepeace Thackeray. So the big Dutch cabinet belonged to him and came down through that line. And then just after the end of the First World War, Duncan Grant took over one of Walter Sickett's studios in Fitzroy Street then sublet it in 1939 and brought down the big mirror and the chaise long um, from there. So um, they have an interesting provenance too. 
Um, we've got the original plaster bust by Stephen Tomlin of Virginia Woolf, made in the early 1930s. Some scotch and vodka. Yeah, some, some Grant's whiskey. Um, and then an early South portrait of Duncan Grant in a turban, looking very saucy. <laughs> and then underneath a portrait of Adrian Stevens, so Vanessa Bell's younger brother by Duncan Grant, around the time that they were having their affair. In, uh, in this cupboard, which belonged to William Makepeace Thackeray, did That's you say? It, yeah. There's a delightful collection of crockery. Could you tell us about this, please? Mm. There's a lot of pieces, family pieces from their childhood. There's designs that they were commissioned to do for Foley in the early 1930s. But um, there's also some plates from the famous women dinner service. So this was a commission by Sir Kenneth Clarke in the early 1930s to do a, a dinner service of about 120 pieces. But the centre of it were 50 plates, each um, 48 of them with a, a portrait of a famous woman and then two plates, one for Vanessa Ball and one of Duncan Grant. And in our collection for a long time, we've had these sort of tester plates where they've been experimenting with glazes and different um, borders and, uh, and different colours. And they've been in the Charleston collection for a long time. But the actual 50 plates from the dinner service were missing for forever. So they, um, after Sir Kenneth Clark died, his second wife took them, uh, she went back to France and took them with her. When she died, they went into an auction and then um, the auction house closed, so they lost their records and uh, nobody knew where they were. Um, there was a big Kenneth Clark exhibition at the Tate uh, not very long ago and even the Tate couldn't find where these plates were, so they borrowed ours to show um, in the exhibition. But suddenly they appeared and they appeared with a gallery in London and um, we decided that, yes, we should probably try and purchase these plates. So they were, um, they were quite expensive. Um, and so luckily we got everything sorted before our exhibition spaces, exhibition spaces opened last September. When I was a child, this was one of the coldest houses I've ever set foot in. They never had, you know, the central heating never worked or they had it, but if, if it did work, it didn't seem to. So one would freeze to death, but there was a nice big stove in the studio and we would cluster around that. Um, now we have it so that our visitors can wander around the studio and look at all the marvellous things that are on the walls. Back in the day, it was a muddle and a mess and it was full of paint and piles of paper and stacks of canvases and you could hardly move in that room. You had to climb over things, and it smelt of turpentine. And you know, the funny thing is, the to me, Charleston still smells the same. It smells of old books and turpentine and lavender. Um, how that has happened, I don't know, but maybe it's impregnated under the plaster. The portrait of your grandmother that hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, does that capture the red dress? Yes. Yeah. That was painted in 1915. I suppose I mix up the portrait that I see with what I know about her life because obviously I know now quite a lot about her biography. I, I do have this quite strong perception of her as someone who was pushing out boundaries, who was full of quite sort of preposterous and f a very funny, amused, um, bold take on life. And if you look at her painting, her early paintings, you do see her as someone who was bold and monumental. And the grandmother I actually remember wasn't like that. Big things had happened in her life. Her eldest son, my uncle, was killed in 1937 in the Spanish Civil War. 
and that tragedy was one that she never really recovered from. Uh, she became more reclusive, more withdrawn in her old age. But still, I think what made things good for her was her family and her grandchildren. She always was incredibly welcoming and warm to us. The portrait of your grandmother was by Duncan Grant. It's a sort of rare example, certainly in, in our series, of, of an artist knowing their subject. Do you think that it has a particular tenderness for that? And do you see a similar intimacy in a lot of the group's paintings of each other? Well, these were very close friends. These were people who were um, knew each other as really important friendships. And in the case of Duncan and Vanessa, they were lovers. Um, so I can't remember whether that was painted at the time when they were still in a relationship. But actually, that's a false definition because they were in a relationship, if you like, all their lives. But there's no question that it is a, a, an intimate piece of work. It's, uh, I think it's a loving piece of work. Their relationship was very complicated. He was gay, she was not. If you fall in love with a gay man as a woman, you're going to find it's not maybe going to be as fulfilling as you might have wished. They had a child. Nevertheless, Duncan Grant was not going to be able to give her the closeness that she craved. And I think in certain respects, uh, Vanessa's life didn't give her what she wanted in terms of relationships. This is the garden. <laughs> Oh, it's lovely. It's a sweet little space, and isn't it? In summer, in the depths of August, this is perfect. Exactly, and that's what this garden's about. It's the back of the studio, but it's not the bit that goes into the wall garden. It's its own little wall garden. It's only about five metres square, probably, and it's got a pond in the middle. And the back door of the studio goes comes straight out into it, and it's this private, very hot, sunny space. And when we, everything we know about their love of the Mediterranean speaks to this part, doesn't, doesn't it? Doesn't it just? Mm. You've got the, the vine here, you've got figs, and there happens to be a honey euphorbia, but, uh, mellifera, but the point is that this pond here isn't a pond, it's actually a plunge pool. It was only when I came to clean it out that I found out. <laughs> it sort of fell in. It's How very deep. deep. It? It's about, um, it's over a metre, it's about a four, four feet deep. Oh my god, I bet on a hot day that's the best thing in the world. Can you imagine Duncan would have come out here with Powell's, with his friends, maybe with the models when they were getting hot in the studio, and plunged into the pool and enjoyed the freedom of this very, very private hot space. Wow. So this is Clive Bell's library. So when he moved in in 1939, he was given this suite of rooms. His library, his bathroom and his bedroom. And he could close the door at the end of the corridor and be away from the rest of the household. But this originally was Vanessa Bell's room. When did you come to Charleston? So I've been at Charleston for a few years. I came, I think, 16 years ago. So I did a, I did a mid-30s career change and I went to Sussex and did an MA in art history and then got my first job at Charleston and did a museum on the back of that. Um, how much did you know about Vanessa Bell before you first came to Charleston? I could lie. 
No. <laughs> Tell, <us> the truth. <laughs> Tell the truth. Um, I hadn't been to Chelsea before I came for the interview. I must admit, I didn't hold them in very high regard. The qualities in their work that I really like and love now were the things that I found sort of frustrating then, that their work was quite, felt quite passive, quite domestic, that it wasn't this thrusting modernism. But sort of being here and working amongst it and almost like living it, you sort of learn how this is a different type of modernism, how there's so many other ways of living that um, this sort of macho modernism that you get with other artists isn't sort of the be or end or in fact it's it's a, a, a armor hiding to nothing that there's this wonderful feminist and queer art that's being made by the Bloomsbury Group and at Charleston that is um, much more stimulating and exciting and, and challenging. And what about Vanessa as a person? How did she come to life for you? When I was doing my doctorate, I read a lot of letters and just seeing both her and Duncan Grant's handwriting, how, how her handwriting would get so bad when she was tired or stressed or anxious. And just those anxieties coming through or that love coming through, she could be really frustrating and sort of not understanding things, but at the same time being a wonderfully nurturing and creative person. And how about as a sort of pioneering artist? She was very much an equal. What I like about the Bloomsbury Group is that it is this equality, that the things that Virginia Woolf felt, those sort of early meetings with her brother's friends from Cambridge, that they were treating it as an equal. They were being judged on their intellect or their ideas and what they were saying. So I think Vanessa Bell has this wonderful independence. She works closely with Duncan Grant, she works closely with Clive Bell and with Roger Fry. There's lots of exchanges of ideas, but she works on equal terms. She doesn't necessarily see herself as a woman artist. She sees herself as an artist, full stop. But at the moment, we are very much questioning that sort of very patriarchal, very male mm. take on the world, that that, that isn't necessarily the only way of seeing the world or yeah. creating art or creating or writing or whatever. Um, is that something that you think is a sort of rich setting for seeing the Bloomsbury Group anew? I think so. I think you've got you've got Lytton Strachey reinventing biography in this quite a queer way in sort of knocking out the pomposity of Victorian lives um, when he wrote uh, Eminent Victorians. You've got Virginia Woolf completely rewriting the novel and then exploring gender and the role of women in the sort of 1920s and 30s. And you've got Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell painting kind of on an equal level. You've got these wonderful societies of people that have equality within them. It's there all the way through the 20th century and it's there in small ways. I think now it's a mainstream thing and it seems to have taken a very long time. I'm not quite sure why it's taken so long. Is that slightly because people recoil from the scandal and the, the way they live their lives a little bit? He, they can't quite become the William Morrises in the same way, can they? Sometimes the, their lives get in the way of looking at their art. I mean, in the 1920s and 30s, you go into a gallery and you see your work by Vanessa Bell or Duncan Grant, and you don't know that the little girl in the painting is the artist's illegitimate daughter or the boy and the, the man and young man in the painting is the artist's lover or all these things. Those were not known outside the very, very tight circle of friends. But now these are the, the punctums of those Paintings are now their private lives, rather than looking at the painting, the work for it in its own right. 
Recently my mother died and I've been going through her papers and her photographs and I've found pictures that touch me very much of Vanessa holding me as a little baby and I was uh, really happy to see those. I thought, well, she may have been sad in her old age for other reasons, but I'm glad to have been given to have given her a little joy. But also, the, <laughs> I love the stories my father used to tell about Vanessa, and I suppose they've kind of gone into my system. You know, I keep coming back to this idea of joy, and Charleston is full of ple- a pleasure principle. I think that when you come here you get the feeling that these were artists who were positive about life, who were optimistic, who were at peace with themselves and who wanted to convey that instead of always, you know, being angry at life. They were people who embraced life. Toast Podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton. Produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St Martin's Place. Tucked behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series, and earlier series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.